Hello everyone and welcome to Biopics Mostly Suck, where we provide the true story behind movies based on a true story. The movie under scrutiny today is Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie sold as the story of Queen, but is really the story of Freddie Mercury. His former bandmates Brian May and Roger Taylor are the executive producers of the film. Did they do justice to Freddie Mercury? Did they create a tribute? Or did they create fiction? Today, I have my friend and local musician John Helix with me to talk about the film. John is a talented multi-instrumentalist singer-songwriter who is well-versed on musical knowledge, and he was the perfect person to talk with about this movie. You can find the music of John Helix on Apple Music, Spotify, Deezer, iHeartRadio, and anywhere where you get your music. Let's rate Bohemian Rhapsody. Sticks to the fingers. What? <laughs> Sticky fingers? <laughs> That's a Lennon line before. What song is it? Sticks to the fingers. It's on the White Album somewhere. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. No, is that where the album title of uh, Rolling Stones came from? Sticky fingers? I don't know, but it sure is a dirty line. It sure is. Well, I mean, it's an album with a guy's bulge on the front. Yeah. So uh, that's the Rolling Stones, so go figure. Did they ever do a uh, like a like a Nirvanaized version of that? Did they ever have to take the, remove the the girth or anything? Did they like you know how they ah did they do that for, with the with the Stones album? You mean has there ever been a version of Sticky Fingers with a black bar across it or a or a a, a modestly uh, fashioned a, a happy member face. <laughs> a happy face in front of member it. outline. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like a chalk outline? Yeah, 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 yeah. Or just, or just maybe a less of a swelling. Uh, I don't know if Sticky Fingers has ever been huh. edited in that way, but it'd be a good thing to check out. Interesting. You can... Okay. All right. Let's not go there. All right. Okay. Anyway, here we go. Yeah. yeah who, who, okay. who knows? Who knows? Okay. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, how do we segue from talking about uh, bulging members on... Well, bul- bulging members, I mean... Bulging members... And that's a reference to. Well, you were talking about bands that you only need. You got the greatest hits, mm-hmm. and you're good to go. Uh, I think there are some bands. If you have their greatest hits, you're good. Yeah. Uh, I think Queen's one of those bands because there's a lot of stuff they did on some of their albums that just I don't think people can recall at all. I mean, the the movie we're about to talk about, Bohemian Rhapsody, completely skips over Queen 2 and Sheer Heart Attack. A- and you would think that Bohemian Rhapsody is the first single they ever released. Yeah. And, yeah, interesting, right? That it's the... Right. It's their, their, breakout, uh, <laughs> their breakout hit. Uh, of all things, they, they had already had Keep Yourself Alive yeah. from Queen 1. They had Killer Queen off of Sheer Heart Attack. Uh, Stone Cold Crazy off of Sheer Heart Attack, which are great songs. Stone. And, and by the way, speaking of Sheer Heart Attack, have you ever seen that album cover? No. Uh, it's the four band members lying at odd angles. You just see their torsos, right? Uh, and they all just have dead fish eyes. Right? Yeah. So, and this is a band, and you've seen the cover of News of the World, yeah. right? Which is a large robot and yeah. the band member's dead in its hands. Yeah. Or, or I think Deacon's falling when you look at the gatefold on the back cover. So this is a band who had a thing about presenting themselves as dead. Interesting. Which they also did the song All Dead, All Dead, right? All Dead, All Dead. Right? So, yeah. But but yeah, there's a there's a lot of stuff that Queen did that I don't think registers with most people i i think when it comes to queen the knowledge base is their greatest hits and whatever they think they know about freddie mercury yeah and i i would even go further to say that to most people or many people freddie mercury is queen i would say that i would say probably if if people aren't well versed in queen uh they at least know brian may yeah Uh, I would say for a lot of people, Roger Taylor probably didn't come into their consciousness. Probably not. <laughs> until the past 10 years. 
because they were touring with Adam Lambert. So it was always Roger Taylor and Brian May as Queen and, and Adam Lambert. And then John Deacon, who retired shortly after Freddie Mercury died in 91, uh, just retired from the music industry. Yeah. So, yeah. So we were, so we were talking about, you were mentioning that having that knowledge of each, each individual identity of the band member, right. Contributing to the, the overall like scope and understanding of, you know, the depth of each going into each album and each song. We were making the, you were making the Beatles comparison. Well, you had mentioned the Beatles and I thought it was an interesting comparison because you have, uh, uh, a much larger breadth of knowledge regarding the Beatles, uh, just because of how they've been portrayed in our culture. Absolutely. Right. You know, uh, I, I think the public at large just has a broader understanding of the individual members of the Beatles and of the group and their output than people do about queen. Uh, yeah. I think for most people, queen is the greatest hits. Okay. From- uh, rather than the entire breadth of their catalog. Yeah. Which, probably plays into how people come to the movie we're going to talk about which is bohemian rhapsody and we're on biopics mostly suck right now and where we talk about biopics and we talk about them in two ways so we're going to talk today about bohemian rhapsody as a film did it meet its mark did it present compelling characters did it present a narrative which is interesting uh were we emotionally invested in the film did it provide all of those things that a good piece of entertainment should but it's a biopic right so uh at least for me i know some people like to live in their bubble uh but for me i i think when a biopic is being created there's an extra level of responsibility that comes into play uh you aren't dealing with fictional characters although fictional characters may sometimes be created uh, but you're dealing with real people Uh, Sometimes if they're dead, they don't have a say in how they're portrayed. Sometimes if they're alive, they have to live with the consequences of what is presented about them in a biopic. So I think there's an extra responsibility that comes into play. And that's part of what we're going to talk about in the second half of today's podcast. Absolutely. So when we have Bohemian Rhapsody, let's go ahead and talk about just the plot of the film because it's about Freddie Mercury. And the band Queen, the band Queen, were Brian May, Roger Taylor, and John Deacon. And we're going to talk about what was presented in the movie. And we start out with Freddie Mercury, also known as Farouk Balsura, because he was originally born in Zanzibar. And we encounter him first in the movie as a baggage handler at Heathrow Airport. He goes out for the night to a club where he sees the band Smile. And he is there where he meets Mary Austin, who will become the love of his life. And he's also there at the fortunate timing of Jim Staffel, the lead singer of Smile, who quits the band that night. And Mercury then introduces himself to Brian May and Roger Taylor, and he becomes the lead singer of Smile, soon to become Queen. So perfect. So perfect. It's like everything coming together at the right time, right? Well, you know, sometimes truth is uh, stranger than fiction. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. Well, the band signs with Elton John's manager, John Reed. You're a huge uh, Elton John fan. And they get a contract with EMI. The band becomes successful. Uh, Austin and Mercury become engaged. And then the band records the song Bohemian Rhapsody. And uh, they leave EMI when an executive, Ray Foster, uh, doesn't like the song and provides some roadblocks to the band. And there's an argument which takes place in Foster's office about how Queen should proceed musically. During this time, uh, Freddie Mercury has a affair with Paul Prenter, Who is the band's day-to-day manager? He comes out to marry as bisexual, but she thinks he's really gay. He buys a house for her next door to his, and they remain friends for the rest of Freddie's life. 
In the movie, Paul begins to manipulate Freddy, and Freddy begins to big, throw big parties. At one of these parties, Freddy meets Jim Hutton, who is a waiter uh, for the catering operation. And they talk well into the night, and Hutton tells Freddy to find him when he learns to like himself. Printer orchestrates with manager Reed that Freddy should pursue a solo career. At the same time, Queen puts out the video for I Want to Break Free, which features all of them in drag. And MTV in America refuses to show the video. Uh, have you seen that video, by the way? No. Oh, my God. You, you want to talk? We were talking about Freddie Mercury in camp. Yeah. That guy can work a miniskirt. Oh, yeah. Let's just say that. Yeah. Yeah. That was. We're talking high camp here. We're right? talking high camp, <laughs> yeah. especially with his mustache. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's got to be a sight to behold. Oh, my God. <laughs> we'll, we'll watch it later. We'll watch it later. So MTV does not show that video. And then Freddie Mercury says he wants to make a solo album. And the band becomes estranged. During the estrangement, Mercury delves deeper under the control of Paul Prenter. He also delves deeper into drugs and starts to become ill with the HIV virus, uh, the virus that causes AIDS. And he and the band reconcile just in time. Just in time. Just in time. Just by the nick of time to be part of Live Aid, the worldwide concert that took place in 1985. And he uh, reunites with Jim Hutton, presumably because he started to like himself, and introduces Hutton to his parents, who are conservative, and... All is well. Okay, where do we start? <laughs> where do we start? Now, as a movie, I, I mean, because uh, Rami Malek yep. played uh, played Freddie Mercury. Uh, I read somewhere this movie was all wigs and teeth, which I thought was a great, a great description of the film. It was all wigs and teeth. Uh, but Rami Malek got an Oscar as best actor for this movie. Uh, and by the way, do you know who was playing John Deacon? John Deacon? Who? No. Joseph Mozello. Yeah? Do you know who Joseph Mozello is? No. You acted like you knew who he was. It's like, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Sounds exciting. Uh, remember the little boy in Jurassic Park? Yeah. That's him. The blonde kid? The, yeah, the, yeah, the, the little kid who... The little boy who's in the dinosaurs, yeah. I won't leave you. <laughs> that, that kid who's... I won't who's, leave you. Remember the... This time, I am not going to leave you. What is? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, I got it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's because he had the older sister yeah, yeah, uh, as well. Yeah. yeah. So the little boy who's in the dinosaurs—that's him playing John Deacon. No shit. Okay. No shit. Interesting, huh? Yeah. So, um, so as a movie, good performances. What do you think, John? Yeah. Uh, all, all around, uh, it was a very moving movie, very emotional movie. Um, uh, but I I I th I really do think that, uh, and again, there's no way to know this, but just based on actual footage of Freddie Mercury and mm -hmm. interviews and such, that there was a, there's a certain narcissism I think that came through um, the film that I doesn't doesn't exactly uh, register with me when I when I hear interviews with mercury or i see him perform i i, I see him uh, much more warm and loving and out, outwardly projecting this this energy and light and warmth and radiance and not so much of a self-absorbed figure as he was kind of made out to be toward the, the midsection of the film and toward the latter half yeah and uh i think you've mentioned before there was a warmth that came from Mercury, which yeah. didn't seem to come out of Malik's performance. Of no, there's a coldness. Uh, there was a coldness, and, and it's interesting because there's a, an article, and we'll have a link to it on the website, and, and I wish I could remember the author right now, but, um, but this author writes for the Irish Times that uh, the movie is full of unconscious uh, homophobia, a and that the path that Mercury's character has to take is one in which he's almost apologetic for his sexuality. And that's something that didn't quite ring true with me uh, 
having seen Freddie Mercury interviewed and knowing what I know of Mercury, right? I don't recall him being apologetic about anything. No, brazen, if 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 anything else, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, he would never answer questions about his sexuality, and, and I think but right, no shame, no uh, shame, yeah. no, no shame at all. He was very flamboyant in what he did. He was known for being flamboyant, and um, and, and no, he just did what he wanted to do, and if someone didn't like it, that's just what it was. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. But uh, no, I, I would tend to agree. There was a, yeah, it, it was almost like, well, like I said, he was having to be apologetic for his sexuality that uh, it was in part, uh, part of the reason he took the path in the film he did. Yeah. Uh, being under printer's control, um, the drugs. Yeah. And, uh, and then that, of course, in the film, goes into him wanting to make a solo album and like you said narcissistic yeah which uh, i don't think rings true with freddie mercury um but it's interesting so um so other than that mrs lincoln how was the play yeah no shit what do you think the movie's about that's a good question um because we'll we'll talk about the fact versus fiction. The fact it. versus fiction, but we're, the 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 movie itself, just taken as a film piece. Uh, I think it's a paint by the numbers biopic. Okay, is my feeling on it. <clears throat> that um, the there wasn't anything presented in that story that I haven't seen before. Hmm. Right, band comes up, they hit early resistance uh, at an executive level. Yeah. Always at an executive Always level. Always at the executive level. Isn't it? Uh, always at the executive level that Those, they have to overcome for their artistic integrity. That's right. You have to struggle. That they have to struggle. To fight for your vision. Yes, of releasing Bohemian Rhapsody as a single. And, uh, it, and then they hit some type of conflict, some type of personal estrangement. The band's going to break up, whatever it may be. Uh, and then... Uh, and then the reconciliation. So the, the the typical schema or the typical paradigm of uh, your average rock biopic, right? Average rock biopic. Now, with that being said, I have to say I got choked up during the Live Aid scenes uh, because of how they presented it. They presented it as Mercury against the odds of his illness, against the odds of the band almost breaking up. They come together, they put on what is easily the best performance of Live Aid, if not the best 20 minutes of music ever presented in rock and roll. Oh, yeah. So, um, now, not knowing the full story about everything, um, uh, I do remember when Mercury passed away, uh, and I do remember that um, his illness was not disclosed until literally 24 hours before he uh he just didn't answer questions on it he asked everyone in his circle including queen to not share it and everyone honored his wishes and he put out a statement uh less than 24 hours before he passed away uh revealing his status and then that was it uh but I didn't recall when watching the movie where it fell in the timeline of everything. Yeah. So I uh, I got taken with what they presented in the film as far as his illness and the band and coming back together and all of that. Yeah. So the fact that it got me emotionally means they did a good job on it. Oh, yeah, definitely. It definitely has an emotional punch. Um, yeah, it has an emotional punch, definitely. Where Where would you put this on... On your scale, we're doing a one to five. Yeah, one to five sounds good. Um, I'd say a three. Solid three. Uh, I'd say a solid three. It got me at the end emotionally, but it was still a standard biopic with wigs and teeth. Yeah, I'll put it at a, at a solid three point five uh, for the definitely the emotional content, um, and also the effect of seeing it on the big screen. I think was something. I think I I I I do think that if you were to watch that film 
after it's been released in theaters. And if you see it on a laptop, I think it's going to have a much different effect. Uh, we wa- we watched it on our TV. But you have a great sound system. Yeah, we do have a decent sound <laughs> system. <laughs> and you have a great TV. <laughs> we have a good TV. It, it's, it's a good TV. It has served us well. But um, you, got a, you got a home theater, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. So, but I mean, on screen, did they capture the vastness of, uh, yeah, of the, Live Aid well? Yeah, I think so. I think that was the the, the largeness of uh, the larger than lifeness of of the story and the characters and the adventure. I think definitely was was really well captured. Um, yeah, and and it, uh, definitely full, full, full of emotion, full of emotion. I don't know if it. I, I didn't choke up in it though. I didn't choke up. I choke up when I watch the Live Aid, the real Live Aid. Oh, the real one on YouTube. Oh God, oh, oh my that God. that one. You put that on, and I'm a goner. Uh, me too. I get tears in my yeah, eyes. Yeah, it's it's hard. It, I mean, it's I, I love to watch it, but yeah, but I I didn't choke up in the movie. That's interesting. Interesting. I did enjoy it though. Yeah. 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 So three point five from you, three point five from me. We'll meet in the middle. Three and a quarter. Three and a quarter. Let's call. Three it. and a quarter sounds good. All right. So three and a quarter for the score of the movie. As a movie, doing the things a movie has to do. Yeah. Now let's talk about it because it's a biopic. So we need to talk about the fact versus fiction. So we're going to go ahead and go through and just go ahead and start at the beginning where we have Freddie meeting Roger Taylor and Brian May in the parking lot. And he sings and explains about his four extra teeth and which that's interesting because as a story device, right? If, in reality, he's known them for quite a while. Mm-hmm. In real life, he was a roommate with Brian May. Uh, he ran a clothing stall with Roger Taylor. He was a backup singer in Smile. And he kept bugging them to let him be the lead singer. And it wasn't until Jim Staffel left, which was probably the only true part of that entire piece in the film, mm-hmm. that they finally made him the lead singer. But they had known each other for quite a while. So in real life... He wouldn't be telling them about his teeth and his octave range. And they already had a uh, uh, a sense of friendship and camaraderie and all, all that. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. In fact, Mercury knew Jim Staffel in art college. So they, they were all tight with each other. And even Mary Austin, uh, he didn't meet her on that night. He didn't meet her until after he was already the lead singer of the band. But she had been dating Brian May. So she was already in that circle as well. So a lot of what we saw presented in the film was false. But for the purposes of presenting a story, there could be some legitimacy to doing that. Right. And I think the question is going to be going forward. I can already already see the, the, the fictional arc beginning to sprout. And I, I, the question I think is going to be, first of all, what you, as you say, why are those changes made? Yes. Right. Is it possible to make a biopic? That stays true to the facts? That's interesting. It's a good but, question. Let's put it on the shelf maybe. but We'll, we'll put it on the shelf. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's some films we can look at yeah. where we can see if that's the case. And it'll be interesting to see if it makes a good movie as well. Yeah. But... Not for Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Uh, there are some times you have to make things more concise. Okay. So I get why they handled the introductions of the characters as they did. Because if we were to cover where everyone met and how, and that would be... 30 extra minutes. 30 extra minutes of film, which wouldn't mean much to anyone. So so I can, I can understand. So there's kind of a legitimate reason for taking some license here yeah. in this instance. Uh, But hey, fun fact, Jim Staffel, who was the original lead singer of Smile, uh, was into model making and became the chief model maker for Thomas the Tank Engine. For any of you out there who have had kids or just enjoy watching Thomas the Tank Engine, Jim Staffel was responsible for a lot of the models on that. Uh, And hey, something that's really cool too is that... uh, May and Taylor recruited him to sing lead vocal when they re-recorded Smile songs for the soundtrack. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. 
All right, so Freddie and Mary, we talked about them. They didn't actually meet at the club, but they met a little later on in real life. Now, the rest of what's presented is mostly true in the film. Uh, Austin and Mercury did know each other their entire lives. Uh, Mercury did come out to her as bisexual, and she really thought he was gay, uh, not just bisexual. And um, after they were no longer romantically involved, he did buy a home for her nearby, and uh, currently she lives in the last home Mercury had. Wow. So that would be the large mansion that they show in the film, not the exact place. Mm-hmm. They'd actually asked her if they could use it for filming, and she declined. I think that's a good call on her. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's a good call. You don't, you don't who, want... Who asked her? I guess, I, I don't know, producers of the movie, which Brian May and Roger Taylor were... But I don't know yeah, if okay. they... It's kind of a tacky request. ...actually did the asking. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. Depends on how well you know someone, I guess. I guess so. I mean, yeah, I guess so. I mean, sometimes the worst people can say is no. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. doesn't hurt to ask. So, uh, yeah, they were, uh, they were at least on a friendship level. Yeah. They were together for quite a while. And, uh, and Mercury ha- uh, is quoted as saying, all my lovers ask me, why they couldn't replace Mary, but it's simply impossible. The only friend I've got is Mary, and I don't want anyone else. To me, she is my common-law wife. To me, it was marriage. We believe in each other, and that's enough for me. Poetic. Poetic, poetic. But uh, Mary currently lives in the home with her husband and her family. Yeah. Yeah, so she went on with her life. Now, this brings us to, uh, presumably, the movie skips straight from Queen's first album, disregards uh, Keep Yourself Alive as a single, uh, forgets about Queen 2, forgets about Sheer Heart Attack, and jumps right into the album that had Bohemian Rhapsody. Oh, yes. And this is where we come across Ray Foster, who is the bad guy executive who's putting up resistance to Queen about their creativity, played by Mike Myers, who starred in Wayne's World. Schwing! Schwing! And uh, it's just hysterical to watch him say, no teenager is going to listen to Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) I don't know if that's why they got him to do the role, but it has to be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's right. Speaking of Wayne's World, yeah. did you notice during the Live Aid concert at the end, there's two characters in the rafters who look like Wayne and Garth? No. They cut to them. It's a brief cut, but these two people... They have the hat and the hair. And with everything. a black hat, their dress is Wayne and Garth. You know who that was? Brian May and Roger Taylor. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, go, go back and check it out. Yeah. So... Um, so we have this character, as we usually have in a music biopic, yeah. putting up resistance to the band's creativity. In real life, the chief of EMI Records was Roy Featherstone, and he was a huge fan of the band. But he did think six minutes was too long for a single, which, yeah. if you're familiar with the song American Pie by mm-hmm. Don McLean, I think that clocks in at six to eight minutes yeah. and... It fades out on side one, and you have to turn the 45 over to continue to listen to the song. Yeah. You know, I haven't come across a 45 of Bohemian Rhapsody. I don't know if Ooh. it's all on one side. But we should check that out. We should. Because if it... Fa- where, where, now, now where, would you, where would you cut that? I was just thinking of listening to Bohemian Rhapsody and hearing it fade out at some part. It would have to be a dead stop on it. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> flip, the, flip the record. Flip, mama mia, mama <laughs> mia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but you know what? It's a good excuse to go find a, a single of Bohemian Rhapsody yeah. to add to my collection. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Roy Featherstone was really a big fan. He never had a rock thrown through his window. But what they do present in the movie about DJ Kenny Everett was true to fact. Uh, DJ Kenny Everett was a friend of Mercury's. Uh, They became friends when uh, Everett invited Mercury to come on his morning show 
on the radio. And they were just two of the most flamboyant, outrageous, and popular entertainers in London at the time. They became fast friends. And Everett got hold of a copy. How do you think he got hold of it? Hmm. Accidentally. Accidentally. Through Mercury, probably. And he accidentally played the single on air. And on one day, he played it 36 times. And then the Capitol Capitol Records phone lines were jammed up asking when it's going to be released as a single. So that part in the movie is true. All right. And now this brings us to Jim Hutton. In the movie, Jim Hutton is a waiter for the catering operation at one of Mercury's parties. And we get introduced to Jim Hutton when Mercury grabs his groin. And Hutton takes some offense to it, but he talks with Mercury into the night uh, where Mercury shares his feelings about being a, a bisexual man. And the evening ends with Hutton saying, come find me when you start to like yourself. So foreshadowing, apparently this is the path that's set in front of Mercury in this film, which as we were talking about, surrounds his sexuality. Yeah. So there might be something to that argument about the movie having unconscious homophobia. Yeah, the 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 obstacle placed in front of Mercury that his his path. Yeah, is yeah. That's that's okay. All right. Is, okay. Is he has to come to terms with his sexuality in order to be able to love himself or to be able to love someone else? Implied in the comment. Correct. Implied in the comment. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Now the truth is. Hutton was a hairdresser who Mercury met in a light nightclub, and they were together for six years. He was at Mercury's bedside when Mercury mm. passed away. But Mercury did not go find him in the phone book later on. Uh, however, as presented in the movie, Live Aid was the first concert Jim Hutton ever attended. Which, where do you go from there? No, you, there's, there's nowhere to go but down from there. That's That's going from... Spinal Tap 11 to, I, I don't know. What do you see after that? What what could top that? After Live Aid? Yeah. Mean, since 85? Yeah. You don't think there's been a concert uh, that's been at that level? Uh, that perf- No, that performance. Just the Queen performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, I love the other performances, but that Queen performance. You got, a- you got a better one? No, I'm trying to think, but... From 1985 to now, there's there's got to be something. I'm just trying to think of the thing that you could show to someone with absolutely no context and say, just watch, and have them absolutely floored and moved and excited and energized. And I'm, I'm trying to th- the command. I'm, what, and you're saying Queen's performance at Live Aid is that thing? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of what tops it. I mean, where, like you're saying, where do you go from there? You're, you're only going to find disappointment in concerts. You know? Okay, so here's the thing. If you were to take 20 minutes of any band's performance, yeah, would any 20 minutes of a band's performance top that 20 minutes it's of pe- Queen? Mm. No, because as as you're mentioning the, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. But the medley, right? Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of another band that could do a medley and make it seem like a coherent theatrical piece, musical piece that is that deeply moving in 20 minutes. That's not a lot of time. Not a lot of time at all. And I'm thinking stadium rock bands and just big large shows I mean, it, would t- it would take you two five minutes to get into the intro right mm-hmm. yeah i'm trying to think who who else could you compress into 20 minutes and evoke the same type of emotional response yeah. just from a musical performance and be able to i i, I want to emphasize that be able to show that piece with the the actual footage with zero context to someone yeah and say just watch just watch because i've shown i've done training for facilitation i've done training for public speaking and i've done that 
uh, because I wanted to get across to pe- to the people I was training. You need to be able to engage the audience. And what was the response like? Well, uh, well, the context was it needs to be a back and forth, right? If you're presenting, if you're going to make it engaging, you have to be able to connect with those people and those people have to connect with you. Otherwise, it's a long, hard slog, right? If yeah, you, absolutely. If, if you don't have participants with you in what you're doing, if they're checked out, if they aren't dialed in, if they aren't engaged, that's partly on them. But I think it's partly on you as well because um, you haven't made that connection. Yeah. So what I've done is I've shown that 20-minute video of Queen at Live Aid and said, watch this. This is making a connection. Watch what Freddie Mercury does. And the fact that he can engage people many, many rows out from the stage in a sea of 120,000 people says, you know, they're connecting with him in some way. You watch that part on Radio Gaga when the hands are up and they're clapping, how far back do they go? Yeah. Right? And that tells you people are with him. And that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. It is a tough thing to do. You know, so this just brings to mind, I saw a Bonnie Vare right mm-hmm. and he uh justin vernon makes he's, he's very gracious and an incredible musician but i'm just thinking of this interesting contrast so he plays with full noise canceling headphones on behind a keyboard with a bunch of instruments and makes very little eye contact with the audience and the audience goes nuts. Really? Yes. Really? It's bizarre because I'm thinking of this connection. He's up there in his own world. Yeah. <laughs> and there's still that connection there. But I, again, I, I, I think if you watched the Live Aid performance, and then I think you would be very disappointed by a concert like that immediately afterward if you, if you did a one-to-one comparison. You know, that would be... To be sucked into a television, it's hard enough to get me to watch TV, but to get mm-hmm. sucked into a television and the sound and the image, and it's just it's so immensely powerful. Yeah. Well, with Bon Iver, are people connecting with him or are they connecting with the music? He's largely faceless. That's a good point. He doesn't, he doesn't put his picture on the cover uh, of his records. Um, and the music, it's, it's very strange, too, because the lyrics are, as you know, like impossible to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more of a feeling that they're connecting with. Okay, so so they're tapped into the experience. Yeah, into the experience. So maybe not necessarily him. He's providing the experience, but he's not the one they're engaged with. Right, whereas with Queen, it's, with, yeah. it's a front man directing and gathering 120,000 people all in unison. And that's, a, I don't know, we can get into the, the joyousness of that moment. Yes. 120,000 people all together singing and laughing uh-huh. and just i mean what a wonderful i don't know what a wonderful gift to the world you know well when mercury does the deo right Ayo, yeah Ayo. he he leads everyone in that call and response yeah. same thing i mean he doesn't announce hey guys i'm going to do this right, right? he just does it and what happens immediately yeah they respond right yeah so that tells you they're with him yeah. And that's the thing you're looking for when you're doing any type of presentation is you want to get that feedback. You want to know people are with you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, he, he's he's amazing, but it's a good point. Is there another performance out there that uh, that could, uh, could elicit that response? Yeah. I don't know. I'd have to think on that. Yeah. Although it, I'm thinking no. I'm thinking no too. Although I do think it would be quite a nice injection into the into the culture, you know, to have it now. Yeah, to have another Freddie Mercury. <laughs> do you think there's anyone close nowadays? Is there, uh, is there in terms of stage presence or in terms of talent? Well, Mercury had both, so both. Uh, stage presence, perhaps, but um, yeah, maybe not. Talent, no, no. no. Sing, singing talent, no. For for oh, definitely not. for my money, I, that's that's the best voice of rock and roll. Absolutely. I mean, there's no think what you want about the band, but you, it's, it's, his voice is undeniable. Absolutely, absolutely. 
Um, so much so he want he goes on to do a solo record in the movie, and because he was so pissed off at the band, right? Well, <laughs> they were stifling his creativity. They were stifling his creativity. The uh, the video for "I Want to Break Free" was banned by MTV. And Mercury wanting to do a solo record was just the last straw, and the band becomes estranged. Yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah, what did happen? What did happen is Queen had been on the road for a decade, and they decided to take 1983 off. Uh, Before going on tour in 84, 85, and 86, they just, you know, had been doing it too much. They took uh, a break. They took a break. Now, by the time Mercury started working on his solo album in real life, Roger Taylor had already done two. Brian May had already done one. So apparently doing solo albums was not a problem for Queen. They could just go and do their other projects and come back. And there was never any estrangement that took place. But in this version of Queen, we have... Uh, Roger Taylor and Brian May, who are members of Queen, who are presented in the movie, and they're executive producers of the film, Mm -hmm. and what they present through the screenwriter is that Freddie Mercury almost broke up Queen because he wanted to do a solo album. Which is an interesting point to chew on. Yes. How so? What do you think of that, John? Well, the decision to uh, fictionalize that part of the story. A variety of directions we could go with this, but let's let well let's focus on uh, Freddie Mercury. Okay. Do you think that the portrayal of Freddie Mercury, the fictionalization of that that rift in the band or the estrangement, do you think that it increases his status as a rock legend? Do you think it increases his 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 legendary mythos? That 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 conflict, prima donna narcissistic stereotype that you know we often see and is often real, right, in rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know elements of it in in Mercury, but not n- not a total dominating uh, essence of his personality, right? Not at all. No, and I don't think it helps create uh, a greater myth about Mercury because as we were talking about, he had a warmth to him, which is missing from this film. Narcissism wasn't at the core of what he was. Yeah. And and, and I don't understand putting it in this context, especially when there's no known period of which Queen was estranged, especially when in real life they had made their album The Works. And they had just finished touring for that album eight weeks before they performed at Live Aid. Not to mention the movie shows them performing the song Radio Gaga. If that's the case, where did the song Radio Gaga come from? Because apparently in the film they weren't talking to each other and they weren't making any albums. So so in this revised timeline presented in Bohemian Rhapsody, Radio Gaga comes out of the rehearsals. It comes out of thin air. Where does it come from? If they aren't talking to each other. Yeah. I was thinking along the lines of creating the conflict um, to isolate Mercury further as an individual star. As an individual... To isolate Freddie, from the, Freddie Mercury from the band. To, 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 to I don't know. Yeah. Because- can- canonize him as, as one on his own and then there's Queen over here. And Is this the story of Freddie Mercury or is this the story of Queen? Well, and that's the problem because we find out plenty about Freddie Mercury. Yeah. We don't find out much about May or Taylor throughout the course of the film. We see their wives or girlfriends at Freddie's party, yeah. but nothing is said about their lives. And my understanding is Taylor and May wanted to make a movie about Queen, not a movie about Freddie Mercury. But it seems like they made a movie about Freddie Mercury. Yeah. Because we really didn't learn much about Queen. One thing I've always been interested in is when you're talking late 70s, early 80s and the presentation of sexuality, Mm -hmm. which was throughout Queen's music. And it wasn't Mercury's idea to dress up in drag for I Want to Break Free. And that's mentioned in the movie. It was one of the other band members. Something I've always wondered is since Mercury's sexuality was always questioned, 
then how did the other band members reconcile in that time uh, being in the band with Mercury? Because yeah. I don't remember them coming under fire or this uh, or, or any type of guilt by association from conservative groups or from the outside about being in a band with him. Right. Right? You know. Do you think because his presence was so dom- was so was so dominant? Well, I don't think so because uh, I, th- from my recollection, the time when Freddie Mercury started to become more of a fully formed person in the public eye was after he died, and there was the tribute to Freddie Mercury concert. Oh, interesting! Because it was during that concert when you had all of these hard metal and heavy metal acts. Oh, Axl Rose sang, Axel, didn't he? Right, yes. Yeah. Come and play at that concert. And that was also at the time of Ryan White, oh, if you remember. Yeah. So there was this breakdown stigma of AIDS, HIV, where the public's perceptions of who had it were being challenged during that time period. Um, and, and, you know, because for a long, for for several years, it was believed to be just gay men. Right. Right? Uh, and then public perception started to change. But there are those markers. There's Ryan White. If a six-year-old boy can get it through a blood transfusion, then it's not just gay men. Yeah. Uh, and then it broke down a little more at the tribute to Freddie Mercury, which is um, we're coming to honor this man. So Freddie Mercury broke out of being this flamboyant, gay bisexual persona into being this more fully formed person in the public eye which which is it's just the growth of culture it's the growth of people to be on that path but i would say i i think he was more became more of a person as those perceptions started to break down yeah, and I think we're, we we were talking about the, the creation of legends too. And there's that line in the movie, right? Isn't that from? Doesn't he say it in the movie? You're, you're there. They say you're a legend, Freddie. You're a legend. Yeah, Freddy, something right? along those something lines. along those lines. Yeah, um, but the, the the I don't know. The myth overtakes at a certain point. The the fact, and mm. I. I, but but you yeah. see, I think about creating the myth of Freddie Mercury in regards to his solo career in the movie falls flat because he's never shown being successful in his solo career in the movie. Yeah, yeah. Right? Maybe they needed him to fail for him to gain redemption. That Which seems to be what it is because <laughs> yeah. what happens, he ends up coming back to the group. Uh, as I recall, he's the one who instigates the reconciliation, the meeting at the manager's office. Yeah. And they have them step out of the room while they discuss if they're going to reconcile or not. And during this entire time, apparently there's messages in the movie that are going through Paul Printer and not making it to Freddie Mercury about performing at Live Aid. And it's only through the reconciliation that the band finds out about Live Aid. Right? Didn't they find? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. It's like we. They don't even know what it is. They, yeah, they yeah, don't even yeah. know what it is, right? Yeah. It, it's only being talked about by all the musicians in England because Bob Geldof's working the phones like crazy, but they've never heard of it. So, uh, and that brings us to Queen being a last-minute addition to Live Aid. All right, Live Aid. We're talking. I want to say it was June or July of 1985. You were how old? I would have been four. Four. Wait, 85? Three. No. Three. three. You remember Live Aid well? Uh, I remember the video of it well. (laughs) And how old were you when you saw the video? Oh, God. 22. (laughs) Yeah, kind of a gap there. Yeah, large gap. Kind of a large gap. I I think I was 16 when Live Aid happened. And I remember just turning on the TV on a Saturday morning, and it was there being broadcast live on MTV, I think. You know, now that you mention, I think the first artist I remember seeing you had mentioned earlier, yeah, was uh, that I remember seeing on Live Aid was Madonna. Mid set, beginning set. I think mid set. Yeah, mid set. Yeah, All right, mid set. All right. But you saw the Queen set. Do you remember if you saw that? I think I did. When did it first? When did it first hit you as a as a, in in terms of an emotional chord? 
when when you saw it like when you saw you, you see it's weird like a lot of things in the moment you don't put in that context yeah so it was i mean you know it, it wasn't the the first telethon rock concert to be done i uh, you know, you had concert for Bangladesh yeah. that was raising issue. Uh, you know, awareness of causes. Uh, you had other events like that before. So in the moment, Live Aid just didn't seem like the big deal it's become. Oh no, I mean the Queen <clears throat> performance. When did you first get the full, the full impact of the Queen performance of of Freddie Mercury's performance? Oh, I would say I was well into my 40s. Oh, interesting. Before I revisited it. Because again, you know, because at the time, Queen was not the mythical band. Yeah. Uh, In the mid 80s, Queen was a band that was kind of on the downslide. Their hit output wasn't as great. They were older. Uh, The music landscape was changing. Entering the dinosaur territory. They were entering dinosaur territory. But, uh, you know, who else did you have there at Live Aid? at culture club you had things were much more new wave Mm -hmm. much more ska much more you know uh not what queen was doing which was big and operatic Mm -hmm. and uh and prog rock and uh or a little more old school you know uh, they do crazy little thing called love which is a great song but it wasn't what was the time you know, so to a 16-year-old, Queen wasn't it. There were other bands who are yeah. of that time that were it. So I can't say at the moment I paid a lot of attention to it. But it wasn't until I was uh, well into my 40s and rediscovered the video on YouTube of Queen at Live Aid. And uh, ever since, it gets me, man. Yeah. It, it just, I don't something you know I, I think it's you know same thing about movies if if there's a man going through something in a movie and he cries i end up crying and across the board pretty much across the board yeah yeah um if it's a big emotional thing yeah, you know if, yeah. if it's a minor thing then no i i don't go at a drop of a hat like that yeah. but uh no if it's like an upswelling of things or if a movie is just really works my emotions. Um, uh, you ever see Beasts of the Southern Wild? No. Oh, my God, dude. Uh, great movie about the little girl in Louisiana. Yeah. Uh, that type of movie gets me because it's it's not that things are traumatic or awful in it. it I just become so emotionally engaged in the theme. So sometimes it's theme more than anything else that I just... Yeah. really gets me and chokes me up. Well, because I remember you, you, you first showed me the, um, you first introduced me to that Live Aid uh, performance. And man, that hits you like a ton of bricks. That hit me like a ton of bricks when I saw it. How so? What do you mean by that? I wasn't prepared for it. I was not, I was, I was prepared for a big stadium concert. I was not prepared for a, a man reaching through the television and grabbing me onto the stage and pulling me into Wembley Arena with him. It's and amazing it, how intimate he makes it. Yep. Right? Yep. I mean, my God, it's just, it's incredible what yeah. he does. Yeah. But um, all that said, Live Aid was a huge thing. Uh, two stadiums, one in Philadelphia at JFK, one at Wembley. So as one set broke down at one stadium, the other's uh, band would be setting up. And Bob Geldof, who was the lead singer of the Boomtown Rats and organized USA for Africa, We Are the World, he uh, he was the organizer of Live Aid. Now, Queen was a last-minute addition, and in the movie they present it as the messages weren't getting through. But the reality is Queen played Sun City in uh, October of 1984. And the problem with that at the time is South Africa was under a period of institutionalized racism called apartheid. Um, The public perception of apartheid was not good. The perception of artists uh, overall about apartheid was not good. There was little support for apartheid outside of South Africa. 
Uh, Stephen Van Zant, guitarist for Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, put out the single I Ain't Going to Play Sun City uh, in order to bring it to the forefront. And, um, and unfortunately, Queen did. And when Queen did that, it was not received well. Uh, they were uh, sanctioned by the British Musicians Union. They were sanctioned by the United Nations, who had a cultural boycott in place. Uh, and in fact, when they appeared on John Peel's British music show uh, the following month, he introduced them as Freddie Mercury and the Sun City Stompers. Ouch. Yeah. So just the fact that he would introduce them in that way told you public sentiment was not with Queen. But Brian May defends it as saying Queen has never been a political band and they were asked to play and they went to play. Um, so take that as you will. But as it turns out, when Bob Geldof organized USA for Africa to record We Are the World, he did not invite Queen and he didn't invite Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury said he would have loved to be part of it, but uh, Geldof didn't invite them largely because of the fact they played Sun City. A few months later, when he's organizing Live Aid, he wanted Queen to play, but Freddie Mercury was uh, still had his feelings hurt about USA for Africa and wasn't quite responding. So Bob Geldof took a different tact. He contacted Freddie Mercury's manager and said, tell the old faggot that's going to be the biggest thing on the planet. <laughs> and, and to which Freddie replied. Uh, he thought it was hysterical having it presented that way. Yeah. He thought it was great. And, uh, and Geldof also said, what better audience for Freddie Mercury? It's the whole world. <laughs> it's cosmic. It's cosmic. So <laughs> Freddie Mercury and Queen were sandwiched in between Dire Straits and David Bowie. And they went on to do the performance we've been talking about, yeah. which is just simply amazing. Yeah. But in the movie, they put it all on Mercury's shoulders, which I guess if you're two members of the band who made the decision to be on the wrong side of history and play in a, in a resort in a country under institutionalized racism, then... Uh, you might want to rewrite that history? You might want to... You have the power to rewrite, rewrite it. You might want to, unfortunately. But, so, but they threw Mercury under the bus to do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's... Yeah, and that's the... the, the like you were saying, the responsibility of tending to someone's legacy and actually not just tending to it, creating it and shaping it for generations to come and t until the next movie's made until the next movie's made but this is people's introductions to Freddie Mercury too yeah right you yeah. know so uh, if you want to look at it a little harder I mean what does it say about Mercury in the end the film the, the film yeah yeah oh geez a tragic figure um, weighed down by his own demons which, by all accounts, he wasn't. Right. It's not Jim Morrison being presented in the doors we're talking about here. Yeah, know? but this is the presentation. Uh, his, that's why I think the pre the presentation in the film, Mercury's uh, Mercury's character, something I don't know, some a sweetness, a warmth. That's what we keep we keep referring back to. Something's mm -hmm. off there. Something's off there. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so now in the end, Mercury's AIDS diagnosis, because uh, in, the, in the movie, the band is shown rehearsing for Live Aid because they haven't performed for a while. Right. As it was mentioned, they, they had just finished touring the Works album eight weeks before Live Aid, so they were plenty rehearsed. So they were tight. <laughs> they were tight, but they still rehearsed because, as Gildoff said, they were the only band who got what Live Aid was about, and that was 20 minutes to present a jukebox version of your hits and that's what they did well so they rehearsed in order to uh, get that together and in fact I was able to find the rehearsal footage so we're going to have that on the website oh, beautiful for people to see and I'll just say Brian May in tennis shorts it, it's something something to watch something to behold enough said but absolutely I mean it it's not as affecting as the Live Aid performance yeah. because you don't see Mercury working that crowd, but it's interesting to show the work in progress. 
and see how they develop it. So, uh, well worth checking out. Uh, but Mercury did not know about his AIDS diagnosis in reality at the time of the rehearsals. In real life, though, he did tell the band very much what he says in the movie, which is he doesn't want it announced. He doesn't want uh, uh, to be treated any differently. And, uh, and that's what he did. He kept on singing until the end. The last album he did with Queen in 1990, he showed up to, to sing as much as he could, and the band worked around it. I think May said they basically lived at the studio, and whenever Mercury could be there, he would be there and sing. And he just went out uh, at the end like he always was. In the end, Jim Hutton was with him at his bedside, and, uh, and the world lost uh, a great presenter and a great artist. Amen. Amen. Uh, in fact, if you wanted to visit Mercury's gravesite, you wouldn't be able to. Why not? Because Mary Austin was charged with taking his ashes to an undisclosed location. And she has said she's never going to reveal where it is. So Freddie Mercury, wherever you are, you, uh, you're an icon and you were missed. Fabulous. Fabulously tragic. So let's uh, let's go ahead and grade the movie on its truthfulness because we talked about where they uh, took some license in order to be concise in introductions. We took talked about some absolute fiction they created for conflict. Uh, we talked about uh, how they portrayed Freddie Mercury in the film uh, in some false and fairly negative ways. So if you were to take a one to five scale, one being most truthful, five being least truthful, how would you grade Bohemian Rhapsody, John? A solid 1.5. Solid 1.5. Wait, wait, which way are we going on the scale? Five is... Five is... Least... Oh, I'm sorry. Five is least factual. Least. I would go with a solid three. I'm going to go with No, no, let's let's go the way you went. Okay. I think think you're right. Yeah, least is... The lower number. Okay. Yeah, so, that works. That works I, I'll go 1.5 to 1.75. You <laughs> we went from a solid 1.5 to a fluctuation? I'll, fluctu- I'll fluctuate between <laughs> about 0. 0.25. 1.25. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I'd, I'd say it would probably mark a two. There, there were truthful elements for Mary Austin, the DJ, and uh, but you know what? I have a hard time forgiving how they skirted around Sun City and uh, how they threw Mercury under the bus about the whole estrangement thing. Thing I'm revising it. No, no, it's a one. Yeah, it's it, it, it's a one for me. Yeah, the more you think about, <clears throat> and again, I go back to what the what what is this movie about? Is this a Queen movie or is this a Freddie Mercury movie? If it's a Freddie Mercury movie. Yeah, that's that is really getting thrown under the bus for to avoid saying you played <laughs> during apartheid and to create estrangement that was never there and put it all on Mercury's shoulders. Yeah, there. I mean, yeah, that's that. That's a tough one to. That's a tough one to swallow. I'm wondering if they had included the Sun City bit, whether the movie would be well received you, today. Oh, today, <laughs> today. <clears throat> Well, do you think there's an understanding of what apartheid was today? Uh, only for fans of Trevor Noah. I mean, he's he true, ta- he true. talks about it quite extensively. I think it's correct. It's quasi on the radar of and Nelson Mandela. Yeah, but I mean, did, we're going back. <laughs> we're we're going back, but people know Mandela. They know the name. Yeah, whether they know the entire context right, is right, another thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I no, I don't think. I think if you said apartheid, you'd get deer in headlights for a, a lot of people. I, I think so. And maybe you, they know the word, right? That, just, yeah. that it was a phenomenon or something like that, or you know. Which is unfortunate because did you ever see the movie District Nine? No. Oh, completely about apartheid. Oh, really? Oh my God! Yeah, it's a, well. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Uh, gruesome, gruesome movie, but appropriately so, oh, wow. and completely about apartheid, but uh, and it takes place in South Africa. But 
I'm a solid one for the truth truthfulness of Bohemian Rhapsody. You've gone from 1.5 to 1.7 to 1.25. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to go r- r- right in there between 1.25 and 1. Point. You're going to give him an extra quarter there. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, just just, just for the live aid stuff. <clears throat> just oh, because they did it well. Yeah. Okay. Now throw in a little extra credit. Throw a little extra credit for the live yeah. aid. Yeah, because if you're going to have an introduction to Freddie Mercury, do it right. Yeah. But, In that sense. But you know what? It should be the original footage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But if it leads people to the original footage. I sure hope it does. I hope it does, too. All right. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to have you. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here. All right. Well, there you have it. Bohemian Rhapsody. The story of Queen, but really the story of Freddie Mercury, sort of, is an entertaining movie that works the emotions but creates fiction to sidestep some less desirable aspects of Queen's history. As a movie, we rate it at three stars, but as an, but as an accurate representation of the facts, we give it a rating of one, which is an F on our truth meter, as in, what, are you fucking kidding me? It's like Ed Wood made a documentary. Freddie Mercury deserved a better representation of himself as a person. Thanks again to John Helix for joining me to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. Remember, you can check out John's music at Apple Music, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere else you go to to get your music. Or go check out johnhelixofficial.com. That is johnhelixofficial.com. And thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have an idea for a movie we should take a look at, contact us through our website, biopicsmostlysuck.com, and let us know the next movie where we can search for the facts. Until then, take care. <laughs>